Assalamualaikum as is the norm, we've brought two topics for you today. So the first topic is about the rise of nomophobia. And if, I'm sure some of you would be wondering what nomophobia is. So that's the the fear of um, either losing your phone or the fear of not being able to use your phone. Uh, and that uh, term has actually uh, gained some credence over the, over the last couple of decades. So we shall be talking about that from 7.30 a.m. onwards. And... From about um, um, 8 a.m. onwards, we shall be talking about uh, the fragility of freedom and we shall decode the fragility of freedom and we shall talk about the the Holocaust Memorial Day uh, 2024 and we shall talk about um, also uh, the current um, situation um, unfolding in Gaza as well. So those are the two topics um, that we shall be discussing today. Please do join in. This is a live show. So you can always call in at 0208-687-7878. The number once again is 0208-687-7878. And you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Right. Um, let's start with the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Um Sorry, before I do that, uh, I almost forgot uh, to <laughs> <laughs> to bring you in. Imam Bhatti, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good, Brother Christopher. How are you? Yes, very good. Uh, how was your weekend? It was good. Yeah. Just work, work, work. Yeah, um, sure. And, yeah. Uh, that's, that's how it is. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's that's how it is. I guess that's, that's the way it should be. It should be, yes. Yeah, correct. Excellent. Awesome. Right. Um, so the Financial Times focuses on the three U.S. troops killed in a drone attack on a military base near the Syrian border. The deadly strike was carried out by radical Iran-backed militant group, according to the Financial Times. Um, and this, according, uh, this has been mentioned by the White House. The paper observes it is the first time U.S. troops have been killed in an attack in the Middle East since the Hamas-Israel um, war began. Residents clutching flowers whilst attending a vigil for the two teens stabbed to death in Bristol is the lead image on the front of The Guardian. The paper's main story also focuses on the U.S. troops killed and fears of a U.S.-Iran conflict intensifying. The Guardian notes a direct conflict may be inevitable as the incidents proliferate and escalate in impact. The Times quotes U.S. President Joe Biden promising reprisals for the deadly drone strike, but his election rival Donald Trump blames Mr. Biden, saying, this brazen attack on the United States is yet another horrific and tragic consequence of Joe Biden's weakness and surrender. Elsewhere, the paper reports Rishi Sunak will announce a complete ban on disposable vapes to come into force early next year as part of the bid to tackle the rising number of children vaping. The Telegraph also leads with the U.S. base strike and reports how Royal Navy ship HMS Diamond was forced to use its missile system to counter a drone attack by Iran-backed Houthi rebels. The broadsheet's main image is Sex in the City's legend Sarah Jessica Parker turning a floral number during a curtain call following her performance in 
uh, Plaza Suite at London's Savoy Theatre. The familiar picture of police cars and police tape is on the front of the metro as it leads with the fatal stabbing of the two Bristol boys, a 15 and a 16-year-old. The teens were attacked in Knoll West on Sunday night, um, I beg your pardon, on Saturday night by a group of people who fled the scene in a car, police said. The paper quotes in its headline, the paper, um, the parent of a Nottingham attack victim, Grace O'Malley Kumar, who said knife crime was at its epidemic levels. The I reports Labour plans to charge to charge VAT on private fees could mean deprived children may lose out on places at state grammar schools. The party, if elected, intends to int- introduce a 20% tax and a bid to raise an extra £1.7 billion for state education. Head teachers tell the papers they fear it will spark a surge in competition for selective state schools. Stop Messing Around headlines the Daily Express as it reports Business Secretary Kemi, Kemi Badenoch addressing conservative plotters. The cabinet minister said rebels who were just stirring should not should not treat prime minister as if they are disposable. The prime minister, uh, the paper notes it comes days after ex-cabinet minister Sir Simon Clark called for a new Tory leader. Queen Camilla is also pictured on another visit to the king recovering from an operation for an enlarged prostate. And finally, the mirror splashes on government cuts to council budgets having a devastating effect on people's lives. It reports 40 councils are struggling on the brink of bank on the brink of bankruptcy. It highlights the story of a dementia care home in Huddersfield, earmarked for closure by a council and the effect on a resident and his family. So those are the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Um, um, a repeat of the, um, or rather, um, uh, um, uh, the topics, the two topics that we shall be talking about, the rise of nomophobia. So we shall talk about um, the first topic at 7.30 a.m. And the second, we shall start around 8 a.m., will be about the fragility of freedom and the Holocaust uh, Memorial Day, as well as the current situation in Gaza. So those are the two topics of this morning. We shall take a very quick break, and when we come back, we will continue with the discussion on what's going on in the in terms of uh, the newspapers and uh, in terms of what's going on in the community, in our community, and the Muslim community as well. Do stay tuned. He claimed to be that lost one, awaited by all major fates of the world. He claimed to be that Krishna that Hindus were waiting so long for. He claimed to be that Buddha about whose coming the previous Buddha had prophesied. He was that Jesus son of Mary, awaited by both Christians and Muslims alike. He said he was the great reformer predicted by Guru Baba Nanak, as well as the second coming of Zoroaster. He said that his mission was to bring all mankind to the realization that there is a God. He sought to bring about revolutions inside people so that they would fulfill the rights of each other as well as fulfill the rights of God. Now, just who was he? He was the Messiah of mankind, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Ghadian, and he was not a liar. 1400 years ago, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of God be upon him, claimed that the promised Messiah of all faiths would appear to the east of Damascus. It is recorded in writing that around 100 years ago, 
this messiah, sitting in an unknown, undeveloped Indian village, which lay on the same latitude to the east of Damascus, no less, received the following revelation in the Arabic language, Bala Dimashq, meaning destruction in Damascus. He prophesied the First and Second World Wars, and he also predicted that a great war would start from here. It is no secret that the Syrian civil war is the biggest crisis of our time. A conservative estimate states that over half of a million people have been killed since the Syrian civil war started in 2011. However, the number is sure to be significantly higher. Similarly, it is estimated that 11 million Syrians have fled the country since the war began. The pre-war population has been estimated to be 22 million. With different factions on the ground, including American, Russian, and Syrian government troops, Syrian rebels, and ISIS, this has become an international arena of death, a de facto playground for world war. Although world war and the crisis in Syria are signs of his truthfulness, the promised Messiah abhorred bloodshed and violence and instead claimed that he had come to end religious wars. He said that he loved mankind with the same love that a mother loves her child, nay, even more so. What mother would not sacrifice her own peace and well-being for the sake of her child? So, one can only imagine how much the promised Messiah loved mankind. An expression of his love are his timeless words which he desired to be a means of salvation for those he loved, that is, all of humanity. It is a fire, but all those shall be saved from that fire who love God, the doer of wonders. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. This morning we shall be talking about the rise of nomophobia, which is the rise uh, of um, um, this anxiety that we all uh, experience when we don't have our phones. And we shall talk a lot more about that uh, from 7.30 a.m. onwards and from 8 a.m. onwards. We shall be talking about uh, the fragility of freedom and we shall be talking about the Holocaust uh, uh, in 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 um, in Europe as well as the current Holocaust uh, or the current crisis happening in uh, Gaza. Um, uh, at the moment, um, uh, what we shall discuss is um, uh, we talked about the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Imam um, in terms of um, uh, the headlines, one of the headlines today was about the crisis. Um, in the Middle East and the what appears to be an escalating crisis in the Middle East. So uh, the war seems to be expanding. Um, Hamas attacked um, innocent civilians in Israel and then Israel has um, has unleashed this uh, um, this utter carnage as the United Nations describes in Gaza. And um, Hezbollah is um, is now very much in the mix. The Houthis are very much in the mix, and yesterday we learned that uh, uh, that uh, three U.S. Uh, soldiers in, uh, have been killed and and many injured in an attack um, uh, on U.S. soldiers. So, um, your thoughts on this? And I guess um, uh, just to say that uh, 
His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper and may Allah strengthen his hand, has actually been talking about uh, the dangers of uh, of the war, uh, of an escalation in this particular war for, mon- uh, for, for months, yes, and uh, a, a global war for years, for decades. Exactly. Um, I was just reading some of the articles that Al-Hakam have um, given regarding the warnings that His Holiness, um, the Caliphate, the Promised Messiah, has said. Mr. Ghulam Ahmed has um, he's, he's mentioned it for the past two get, uh, two decades. He's given us so many warnings that you know, if a nuclear war is to happen, it's it's a matter of seconds. Yeah, it's not even minutes. It's not hours. It's a matter of seconds. Countries can be wiped off the map if that gets excel- escalated. And um, once you know, uh, th- there was a virtual meeting with one of the um, with one of the communities. In, um, I think it was in Europe and one person did ask um, His Holiness you know what how do you think the economy will be after the pandemic that just happened in COVID mm. he said because the impact is so great there is going to be a conflict the world is in such a time of need of you know economical rise mm-hmm. that something needs to happen yeah. something impactful needs to happen for them to restart again and build again you know, and he said that could, that's not necessarily in terms of you know, um, econ- economy um, um, dropping their rates, etc. Stock market falling out. Something very major will happen. It could be in the impact of a war, small, small wars, but that will escalate slowly and slowly and slowly yeah. to the part we see. We see Russia and Ukraine, yeah. right? And um, it's still ongoing. Correct. Right, and it's impacting the whole world. Yeah. And now with the Israel and Palestine, mm. that's impacting. Now small, small wars between, I think, Pakistan the other day as well, and Iran, if I believe. Yeah. Right. And these small, small things will trigger something very big. And um, Solinas has given us one way out of this. First mm. is just pray. That the world countries, the, the leaders of the world, and he has mentioned in so many peace symposiums, so many addresses that they need to unite and look for a solution for peace instead of war. Because a war like this will destroy countries. And and that's unfortunately uh, what we're seeing today as well. I, we uh, unfortunately see a lot of warmongering leaders yeah. rather than peace-loving leaders. I mean, just look at the... Um, uh, I mean, just look at both of the crises that we currently have, the one in Europe between Ukraine and Russia. As you said, that's going on. There's no yeah. ceasefire there. And uh, Western countries, many Western countries are backing a no ceasefire in in Gaza as well. I mean, it's, you know, uh, yeah, warmongering used to be a, a term uh, when I was growing up, but yeah. apparently it's not a term anymore. It's not something that... I think uh, everyone has their own ideals, yeah. right? Everyone wants to protect what's theirs. Everyone wants to... It's just, as the holiness saying, the world is um, moving away from spirituality and they're going to their worldly desires. Right, everyone wants what they can get. Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no, um, there's no root of peace. There's no, there's no, you know. Okay, look, let's just let them have it. We will do. What, what I we fail can. to understand is, you know, even in the name of self-defense, how can you proudly talk about uh, uh, prolonging a war? instead of calling for a ceasefire how can you proudly say that yeah we're we're not going to back a ceasefire and yet be uh, you know and yet thump your chest about it 
I totally agree with you. <laughs> it's just very sad to see, yeah. to be honest. It's, um, you know, if you even take the religious aspect away, you take the worldly desire aspect away. Yeah. Killing thousands of children who have nothing to do with the school in the first place, even if you justify in some way that, you know, they're taking the land or whatever it is. Take everything away. Yeah. Innocent children are being killed in this war. Correct. Islam teaches us that ch- uh, women and children are not to be harmed during the war. Mm. That's the fundamental principle of side. a war, even if it's defensive war. Yeah. Defensive, offensive, whatever it is, Correct. on any side, Evo. women and Correct. children are not to be harmed to be at Dutch, all. Exactly, yeah. It's only those people who are attacking. Mm. Right. Women, um, children, places of worship. Worship, elderly. It's it's such trees, crops, anything. <laughs> you know, it's and it's, yeah. and war is the last option, mm, or should be. It should be the last option. Yeah, that's number one. The Holy Prophet Sallallahu took war yeah, to a point where may peace and blessing be upon him. Took war as a last option to the point where the oppressors didn't give him option. Mm. Mm. Right. Correct. And even once he won the war, let me clarify a defensive war. Yeah. He wasn't out there to get the land. No, no, absolutely. Right? Yeah. He won a defensive war. Well, okay, the first battle that he fought was with a ragtag army of exactly. 300 people, 300 odd people. Weak people. Fi- 300 ill-equipped yes, weak people. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, without any proper armory, fighting a well-trained army of a thousand. And at those times, time, Arabs, Arabs were very well-trained in the army. Yeah. Like, they knew the inners and outs. And mind you, the Holy Prophet... Uh, a lot of these people were farmers. Yeah. Well, the Holy Prophet was illiterate. Yeah. He didn't know any war. Yeah. He didn't have those tactics of a general. Mm-hmm. That's how you know that Allah the Almighty was behind him. Now, after even when he won the war, right, he established rules of principle for peace. He didn't, he didn't, um, people who attacked him, he didn't go after them, right? He gave them, a, if, the, if, the, if the place of um, the land that he managed to win or wherever it was, the people who, the habitants that were there, they were given rights they were given a place of worship, whether you're Christian, atheist, or whatever it was, mm. right? The women only were not attacked. Mm. The children were free, mm. right? So even if, you know, um, Palestine or whoever it is, Muslims, you know, their concept of war is very, I would say if they have interpreted it in a very wrong way and they have used it to their benefit, Correct. right? And that's how His Holiness has told time and time and again mm. that war is not the answer. You know, and if what was the answer, these principles of going into a war, number one should be the solution. Take it. If solution is not, solution should be always be number one. Even if it takes 10 years to get into that solution, war mm. is not an option. And now if a war does happen in the time of these days, it's a matter of seconds. Mm. Everyone has uh, hands on an atomic bomb. Yeah. It's not the same as World War Two, where it lasts eight, 10 years. Mm. Right. This will be a matter of seconds. Yeah. And the only person at that time you can pray to is God, because mm-hmm. no one can help you out. Yeah, right. And that's the only thing that His Holiness has told us to focus on: is prayer, 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 prayer. And it's the responsibility of um, the community as well to do what they can. Write letters to the world leaders to make them realize that what you're doing is wrong. Right? War is not the answer. Islam has, like I said, Islam has the solutions to all problems. That includes this. Going after, like I was telling you before, going after innocent children, women, elderly. You know, to be honest, social media has actually helped out in great aspect, mm-hmm. revealing the truth. Mm. 
Sure. Everyone Absolutely, can see what's happening. Yeah. I don't need to mention anything on the radio or anything. If you, oh, if, no, 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 if the listener no. wants the to go and so media is not your source. Absolutely. It's not. It's not. Even yeah. not even the news is the source nowadays. Yeah. You know, journalists on the ground are the sources. Yeah. And you can't make it up. Mm. You can't. It's impossible. Yeah. The devastation you see in people's eyes. Yeah. I mean, no matter how how much you question that these are Hamas-run uh, health ministry numbers. You see people dying in the thousands. You see children dying in the thousands. I mean, yeah, you're right. You can't make those look, things look, up. Let me give you a logical point of view. The numbers, if you look at, if Israel is fighting a defensive war, I'm going to give it to the listener. I'm not going to give my point of view. If Israel is fighting a defensive war, the, the number of casualties should be more on their side. Right? It's just to put out there. The, like, logically, it makes no sense. Well, Israel will say to that that um, they're trying to, and, and that's what they're saying, that uh, they're trying to kill innocent. Uh, this, uh, I beg your pardon, they're trying to kill uh, Hamas and they're going after... But a whole, a whole area can't be full of innocent children, women, elderly. I mean, it certainly doesn't sound like very proportionate, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, what, I, casual, I mean, casualty of war should be similar in, casual, in the numbers and the facts that's there in the news, Right. Even if it's thousands and thousands, right? Mm. It should be a bit of similarity in the facts if, they, if there's all going the, on. You know, wh- one thing to your point, um, I heard um, one of the um, uh, anchors on um, on LBC, I think it was, uh, and he asked this question. He said that, do you think Israel's response would be the same if Hamas were actually inside Israel, inside Tel Aviv? Would would they still be bombing this indiscriminately? If some of the Hamas fighters were actually inside Tel Aviv or inside another city of Israel, mm. I mean that's the question to answer. I mean just think about it. Would you still indiscriminately bomb um, and 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 kill a hundred people, even if you th- knew that there was one Hamas fighter there? You would probably think a hundred times yeah. before you did that, and probably still decide doing uh, decide against it. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case uh, that we see in uh, in Gaza, as you as you said. Right. Um, we will come back to this theme after um, the eight o'clock news. The topic that we have um, for the next half an hour is nomophobia, which is the fear of losing your phone. Let's take a very quick break, and when we come back, we will delve right into that topic. Do stay tuned. <laughs> You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the beg your pardon, of the breakfast show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We are going to delve into the first topic of the morning, which is about the rise of nomophobia. Um, Imam Bhatti, would you like to introduce that topic? I think I should mention it beforehand that um, Daniel <laughs> has forgotten his phone. Yes, I, I, I am actually experiencing nomophobia <laughs> the, the, as we speak. The absolutely. symptoms of nomophobia. I forgot my right phone now. today and uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm so feeling I think we something can, definitely is missing. I think I should today, interview so you today say. as a case study. Yeah? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> okay. Um, 
So the story is from uh, the Forbes. Um, so just to give you a very, uh, you know, a summary of what nobophobia is. Nobophobia is the fear of not having access to your smartphone. So it develops various symptoms such as anxiety, stress, panic, etc. So the mere thought of not having your phone close to you or in your fingertips will, um, you know, give you symptoms of stress and anxiety. Um, it has not been declared as an official phobia. Um, however, psychological research has found more than half of the global population suffers from moderate forms of this fear. Such intense dependency on our smartphones will have more than uh, have detrimental effects on our mental well-being. And the only way to combat this issue is through a, is through building a healthy relationship with technology. So that was like a very short summary of um, the topic today and the. Uh, uh, the link to the article is from Forbes.com. So if any of the listener wants to go and have a look and see whether they have no before please free, uh, feel free to do so. Um, so I think a listener might be thinking that what is a phobia? You know, well, what does it mean? Um, what, where does it come from? So a phobia is an excessive fear of a specific subject that you have or a situation or any activity that um, leads to behavior. Uh, and that causes you intense distress. Um, phobias are considered to be a type of anxiety disorder. Um, for a phobia, for, for something to be classified as a phobia, um, it has to have an actual threat posed by the object or situation, and uh, it must significantly interfere with the person's um, daily life. So nomophobia um, is a specific phobia, related uh, to the fear of not having one's phone near you or not having the ability to use it. Um, the term um, of no means not having and then mobile um, indicates the anxiety and discomfort people experience when separating themselves from their phones. So the, some of the symptoms, as mentioned before, of nomophobia is anxiety, distress, constant checking, fear of losing connection, physical symptoms are such as um, heart rate increasing, sweating, trembling, nausea, and uh, literally being dependent on your phone. So in terms of that, what does Islam teach us? Islam does teach us, you know, to be uh, moderate. Um, technology does have its advantages. It also has disadvantages, as uh, Daniel Zawsabkham uh, might, might uh, mention to us. So Islam does teach a moderate, extensive use of a thing or activity or wherever it is. Um, what we can see that nowadays people are inclined towards using their phone more and that causes, you know, self-isolations, they might go out for a bit, go and see their families, whereas you can just FaceTime someone from a thousand, you know, miles across and see them, you know, that could be an advantage. But Islam teaches us the right of God and the right of men. So what does the right of God mean in that sense? Um, it means that, you know, to worship God. The only way you're going to worship God is either you go downstairs, right? As a Muslim, of course, you go downstairs and um, you wake up six, seven o'clock in the morning, your first prayer of the day. It's not the first thing, it's not going to be, you know, jump on your phone, mm -hmm. go scroll through, uh, scroll through TikTok, Instagram, just to see what the latest update is. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I have seen it mm -hmm. nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing is that you, you start your day with, with the remembrance of God Almighty. And the only way you will do that is to, you know, not be addicted to your phone. So moderation is key. Whereas, and hukuk al-ibad means the right of men, the right of your neighbors, the right of your family, 
Right. I've seen the younger generation nowadays, even if there's a family gathering, they're on their phones, unfortunately. And this is a very sad thing to see, whereas they have nothing to talk about besides the fact that, you know, um, what's going on nowadays on your phone, etc., games and this kind of stuff. I'm not inclined towards not having a phone. I have a phone myself, but moderation is very key in Islam. Everything, there should be a balance to your lifestyle. So how are you feeling, Daniel, without your phone? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, as you said, as you very correctly, I think, described it, I am, I'm feeling uh, um, a sense of anxiety. I'm feeling <laughs> a sense of loss. I, I'm also feeling a sense of be bewilderment as well because, yeah, I... I don't know what sort of messages <laughs> I'm, I'm missing. So yes, there's definitely a fear of missing out as well. So yeah, it's mixed feeling. I mean, lots going on in my mind at the moment. We spoke actually earlier with um, an imam, uh, another imam in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Imam Sabah Ahmadi, who is the creative mind behind the popular Instagram page, The Young Imam. Let's listen into what he had to say about nomophobia. Let me start by asking you um, about excessive smartphone usage, which has received uh, a lot of criticism over the years. What do you mind are some of the positive usages of uh, social media and smartphones? Yeah, I think the excessive usage of smartphones has been talked about a lot in the media, especially with the rise of the development of smartphones. I can only give you my, my personal examples of how I've managed to navigate the world of social media and also try to use it to the best of my ability. Um, and it's changed as time's gone on. But for me personally, um, I use social media now just to show my life as a young British imam living in the UK. I also use it to consume content about what's happening in the world, so the news, um, keeping up to date with sport. Um, and also social media also is WhatsApp. Um, so being in contact with friends and family. Of course, there are a lot of damages of social media and, and you can be targeted by online fraud or abuse or hate, but that comes with being on social media, something that you have to navigate through. Do you not find yourself uh, uh, on the slippery slope of going on a YouTube video, for example, and then, you know, YouTube's algorithm recommends another video and then uh, you watch another one, and then before you know it, you've spent a couple of hours on it. Uh, uh, and if so, how do you control that urge? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think a lot of people can get sucked in to simply swiping continuously and mindlessly on social media. And I went through this phase um, not long ago but on TikTok, where I was in the same rut of just mindlessly um, scrolling the app. So I then had to delete TikTok. I don't have TikTok on my phone anymore, simply because it was eating up so much time. And I think sometimes you have to take the extreme approach by sim simply deleting an app to help you stay away from those time-wasting opportunities um, for you to use your time better. And sometimes, like I said, it is the extreme approach. How do you personally use smartphones um and other digital media to spread the message of Islam? I use my social media platform, The Young Imam, uh, to show people what life is like as a Muslim, also to educate people about the true teachings of Islam. And I also try to create content based on the news cycle, 
So if there's a story in the news which I feel like I can take a spin on and give my perspective, whether that's personal or through the lens of Islam, I try to do that and also use my platform as a way for people to come and interact and ask questions about Islam um, and create a space where they feel comfortable enough to ask questions because I'm sure people have questions about Islam but they might not know where to go to get answers. And what sort of uh, feedback do you usually get? Do you um, get overwhelmingly positive feedback or do you get mixed feedback? The feedback I get from my content on social media are both extremes, overwhelmingly positive, but also quite extreme comments of hate and abuse. So there are people who have said that we are not even of faith, but we watch your content because it instills hope and positivity within us. And that's, that's nice to hear from people, but also the other extreme of comments and hate individuals who have a very warped perception of Islam with generally a, a lack of understanding of Muslims which then drives those negative perceptions which then displays itself through the comments that I receive on social media. So how do you personally deal with those highs and lows then um, when you receive exceedingly good feedback and then very very bad feedback? I think with good feedback, it's just about, I just appreciate the person who's been kind enough to send some kind words. Um, and also making sure that your ego doesn't get in the way, because then your motive to make content can change. When it comes to negative comments and hate, you just tend to ignore it, because you can't fight fire with fire. And once people know that their abuse or their comments are getting to you negatively, then only you suffer and it incites them to carry on sending messages of hate. So just ignore it and carry on because like I said, hate you will receive on social media through your journey and being on the platforms. Do you find that it's easy for you to ignore those, uh, those spiteful comments or have you devised a system over the years in your mind as to how you deal with uh, with such hate? When I first started receiving hate comments, it did negatively affect me and I used to question why people would target my account. But as time has gone on, and it's sad to say that the messages have increased, be they infrequent or they have increased, you just learn to ignore it because it doesn't benefit you in any way. Right. What would your advice be to younger generation um, who have developed this actual dependency on smartphones and uh, uh, are dependent on the likes uh, or, or lack of likes that they receive when they post something? I think to say young people are dependent on social media, I believe that's slightly incorrect. I think everyone is dependent on social media. Because you sure. imagine if WhatsApp went down. As soon as WhatsApp goes down, everyone jumps onto Twitter to find out what the problem is, which shows that we are all dependent on right. social media, whether that's WhatsApp or whether that's Instagram or YouTube, if that's the place where you make content. I think it's important to have 
a healthy relationship with social media. It's something we can't navigate around. It's part of our lives. Um, and once you do feel like you are getting addicted, like myself, when I came across TikTok and I deleted the app, in the same way it's important for you to take the appropriate measures to remove yourself from those platforms. And if you are chasing the likes or the dopamine hit from comments or shares or whatever on social media, then it's important to channel your energy in real life relationships, I feel, where it's personal with someone in person rather than sometimes unknowingly talking to people online and not knowing who they are. And once you become dependent on someone or something like likes or talk to people online, it can ultimately negatively affect you as an individual and it can cause anxiety, stress, frustration and depression. So it's a very, you've got to deal with those platforms very mindfully. Some people actually um, these days try to take break from, from social media or even smartphones altogether. And uh, you know, there's, a, there's a term that's increasingly being used, which is called a digital detox. Do you practice any such thing? And, and what are your thoughts on that? I think the term digital detox, <clears throat> I think the term digital detox is quite accurate. And I do practice this digital detox from time to time where I just don't post on social media or I don't consume as much content as I normally would. I think it's very healthy. I think it gives you that mind space to think and process what's happening in your life sometimes when you might not get the time to do so when you are constantly consuming content on social media. So would I advise it? Absolutely. And do I practice it? Yeah, I do. And one last question. So what would your general advice be to, um, uh, to people and, and especially youngsters? And I, I say youngsters because, uh, you know, when you're young, you, you sometimes don't know what you, what you're actually doing, who, um, not only spend a lot of time on uh, social media, but also can, um, can then develop, uh, issues like uh, depression, other mental health problems, uh, you know, competition, uh, being better than the Joneses. Uh, what would your advice be to uh, to those youngsters who, uh, you know, whose life almost depends on posting on social media every day? I think there are two things. I think advice for individuals who are posting on social media for attention and seeking gratification from people online, that can turn into a very unhealthy obsession where you become fixated on digital positive affirmations as compared to real life affirmation. <clears throat> I think what happens is when you chase those online likes, if for some reason one day your content does not get the likes that you're used to, ultimately only you as individual will suffer. So anchoring your happiness on one certain thing when it comes to materialism or 
likes on social media can be quite damaging. If it is your job, however, and you're able to differentiate your personal life and your work, that's a very healthy difference because then you're not dependent on those likes and you're not dependent on the comments and the feedback that you receive. So I think an individual has to decide themselves what bracket they're in and then seek help and advice if you are struggling from professionals. But if it is your job, then I'm sure people will be able to advise you at work on where to draw the balance. Imam Sabah Amadi, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you for your time. Let me start. So that was Imam Sabah Amadi talking to us earlier about um, his thoughts on uh, what nomophobia is and uh, how the younger generation actually uh, is uh, is unfortunately becoming addicted to their phones and what to do to bring a sense of balance in our lives. I guess um, uh, Imam we were also talking about this uh, offline as well that uh, this is this is a very very prevalent theme unfortunately we do see that younger and younger kids are using phones have their phones in their hands and uh, they're going to social media and um, they're consuming all that content yeah i was saying is you know people do tend to laugh at when you see a two three year old um grabbing your phone and then somehow magically has access to youtube and start searching his favorite cartoon or kids, but it's very scary to see that. Yeah, it sure that is. on that young child's mind, the only thing is cartoon and the YouTube app, right? So the second he sees a phone, he has the urge to grab that phone, not go to a toe or a book or anything next to it. He has that automatically urge to grab that phone, swipe it mm-hmm. to open up the phone. Yeah. For some reason, he knows that his dad knows the password. Mm. He will go to his dad. His dad will type in the passcode, <laughs> yes. right? Just cause innocently, you would just automatically would do that, right? Yeah. So he's your son. You're not gonna, yeah. you know. He will go down. He will see the YouTube app. He will click on it. He would type. People might think this is an intellectual feature, but it's a very scary feature it to is, have, meaning is. that he's got no control, mm. right? And nowadays, the algorithm, what I've seen on TikTok and Instagram, is the, the algorithm is not inclined towards. Um, educational things it's more inclined towards you know where it's, 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 it's a waste of time hmm. right it's very sensitive and a, and a child's brain is a very sensitive thing they pick up things so easily hmm. and it's very scary to see that, that these small things will have an effect on their future right whereas the parents don't realize but it does even you know his holiness has talked about such as twitter facebook and this these kind of social media apps he has talked about the benefits of it of course he has but he says there should be a moderation where, like I mentioned before, is that once people start devolving in these type of things, you lose social connections, you lose yourself, you're more in social, uh, you know, self-isolation, you're in your, you're in your bed all the time, or the first thing you do is, you know, unfortunately I have seen where children have their phone right next to their pillow. It's not even like 100 yards away, right? Their first inclination towards the start of the day is to touch that technology, and it's not for the benefit, right? It's just to go and see what's happening. TikTok, swipe, 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 whatever it is. And it's a very scary thing uh, Scary thing to see. Islam has given advantage of technologies. Of course, something that Islam has gives value to 
you know, technology and uh, knowledge, I would say. And there's a lot of knowledge you can get through this technology. Sure. Right. Um, but there are also uh, there's quite a few disadvantages Exactly. And but the thing is, if you do go towards the advantage and use that to gain knowledge, mm. that's a benefit to you. It's not a disadvantage to you. Mm. But it's about self-control, self-evaluation, how much time I'm spending on these things. Right. And I have. I, it does increase your mental being. If you know you have self-control, if you know, right, for example, one hour max a day mm. to catch up on what's going around the world and this kind of stuff, to see what my friends are saying, family saying, one hour a day or two hours a day, you know, and then be productive throughout your whole day. Productivity is key in Islam, mm. right? Since the start of the first pray, six, seven o'clock in the morning nowadays, what are you doing throughout your whole day? First things, remembrance of God Almighty. Mm. Right, the one put you here in the first place, who has given you access to technology. Yeah. Right. What is that benefiting you for the whole day? Like you, you myself, our whole work revolves around technology nowadays. Mm. Right. So if I'm spending two or three hours watching YouTube videos on such a waste my, of time. Such a waste of time. Mm, absolutely. Right. Unless those YouTube which, videos which are, are beneficial to you. Which rarely happens because you're you're I, I, and that only happens if you have a plan. I mean if you if you plan to watch a video uh, and that also actually is never for because there are very few videos for two three hours. Yeah, there are you know much shorter videos and and usually you are on that slippery slippery slope where you watch one and then the algorithm recommends another one and before you know it you spend three hours easily easily and time is so sensitive nowadays. Like I'm sad to say I was I wouldn't say I was addicted to some extent right but it was just like app just keep scrolling scrolling. What I realized was that yeah, ten minute scroll led to an yeah. hour. Correct. And that was uh, that was scary for me. Mm. So I deleted that app straight away. I was like, "This is, mm. it's not a good thing, right?" Yeah. And the thing is that, and at the end of it, every time you do it, you feel guilty. You do. Yeah. Or okay, maybe another ten minutes, maybe another twenty minutes. Yeah. And by the time it's gone, two three hours down the drain, and then you're thinking maybe I could have gone a better sleep in. Yeah. I could have woken up earlier, get a better day ahead, you know. Right. And um, like I was mentioning before, it's very scary to see that the algorithm of these apps nowadays is not inclined towards beneficial things mm. and impacts the younger generation a lot. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't give them that work ethic that you need, you know, responsibilities for the future. And it's very scary to see um, these apps don't promote, um, you know, um, family responsibilities, um, thinking about your future. It's very rare to see that. Mm. But nowadays I have seen that they do promote, you know, um, a different professions what people get into, they teach you, right? And it's 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 a very good thing to be honest. Um where when children don't have like young younger generation don't have anywhere to go, small, small stuff that don't require qualifications can help mm. you in a long way, but that's for you to take that benefit. But what I've noticed nowadays TikTok max max you can stay on a page is ten seconds. Mm. Swipe. Ten seconds swipe. Ten seconds swipe. Mm. So the focus, mental focus of one person is not even more than a minute nowadays. Yeah. And that's very scary to see. That is scary. No wonder the younger generation are struggling in terms of focusing on their studies and this kind of stuff because these things are impacting their brains. 100%. Let's now listen in to what uh, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, uh, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, said about, um, uh, about the use of social media. Let's listen in. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Please, I would like to only ask the guidelines concerning the use of social media for Ahmad, Ahmad students. You see, in the social media, there are some good things and bad things as well. 
But unfortunately, the bad things are outnumbering the good things in the social media. Right? So, you, I'm the students, can also create a platform in the social media where you provide to the people, to empty students, to empty youth, and to other as well, the things which can, which can help you to um, uh, make you better morally, which are which can help you to enhance your educational level, which are uh, which can help you to better your spiritual level. So, in this way, and also try to pick up, even there are those, those I mean, sites on the social media which are helpful for educational betterment or some other things, you can also promote them and give your comments to them and suggest your khudam and students that they can visit those items and those social media platforms which are spoiling your life, they are morally corrupt, I mean, their programs are morally, making you morally corrupt or can corrupt your, you spiritually or morally, then ask your students not to see them. See? So this is our duty. We have to do this thing. But if you create your own social media platform, that would be better. Then at least you can, uh, um, uh, those who are, are in, you are very much fond of visiting social media, they, if you have your own social media, which can help you to um, um, increase uh, their knowledge and make them morally and spiritually better. That will also help them to quench their thirst with regards to social media. Okay. So that was His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Masoori Ahmed uh, talking about the um, dangers of uh, social media. Imam Bhatti, any last closing words on uh, on social media uh, before we go on to only about a minute and a half to go before we go on to the news break and after the news break we'll start the new topic so any any final thoughts on social media I think the best way to is just finish off the quote regarding um, the Hazrat Mizam Ahmed has said he addressed the Lajna Ishtama um, Lajna gathering so it was the women um, in 2021 so he said I've been saying for years that anyone using Facebook Twitter or any similar platforms must exercise a great deal of caution and since then many studies and in investigations have proven the grievous harm being inflicted upon children and society by social media. They have shown that hundreds of thousands if not millions of children globally have suffered serious harm through the use of internet and social media. Um, so certainly it's the glitz and glamour of the world that can never provide true lasting contentment no matter how attractive it appears at first sight. As God Almighty has said, the only way you're going to find peace within yourself is uh, um, uh, Almighty states that I, it is in the remembrance of Allah that hearts can find comfort. 
Thank you very much for that, Imam Bhatti. And with that, we will close the first topic, which was about the about nomophobia, which is the fear of using losing your phone, uh, as well as the use of social media. In the second hour, uh, we shall talk about a second topic, which is about uh, the Holocaust uh, that happened in Europe um, uh, many decades ago. And we shall also uh, talk about the current situation in Gaza. So, um, and we do have a back show. We we have quite a few uh, guests that we shall be speaking to. So do stay tuned for that. Eight o'clock news. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam, where we are about to delve into the second topic of the morning, which is about the Holocaust, the Holocaust Memorial Day, as well as about what is currently unfolding in Gaza. So, um, from the Holocaust that happened in Europe to the Rwandan genocide. Um, this particular day, the Holocaust Memorial Day 2024, underscores the acts of courage amongst oppression and the lasting impact post-liberation. Examining global challenges, it serves a powerful reminder to safeguard, to safeguard freedoms. This commemoration also encapsulates the essence of fragility of freedom resonating with Anne Frank's reflections on the insidious anti-Jewish decrees and prompting contemplation on the vulnerability of liberty liberty in today's world. I guess this is also a point where we must also need to reflect on where we are and talk about the concerns that many raise as to whether we've really learned the lessons on Holocaust or from Holocaust and whether there is a real risk that further atrocities can be committed, are still being committed again around the world. Um, so that is, is something that um, we shall also delve in today. And um, we, um, we've we seen genocides in, um, uh, in Europe, we've seen genocide in Bosnia, in Serbia, in Myanmar. Um, and now we're seeing what the United Nations describes as utter carnage in Gaza. Uh, where the International Court of Justice has actually also talked about the danger of, um, uh, talks about the plausible genocide uh, that uh, might be happening there. So we need to take cognizance of um, 
those things and we need to uh, to really think and um, and and a moment of reflection imambati for for all of us all of course i think even his holiness has given examples of history right all these world wars that are fought holocaust the the forms of injustices right and the outcome has never been has never benefited except for one aspect of a party is never benefited humanity itself right um holocaust is such an example already where laws were against the jews right and islam teaches us that fairness is a key to justice right the example of um the holy prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him where he even had principles for the prisoners of war the basic common needs of a person were given to that prisoner food water clothes so that itself islam has already given you the principles of war like we mentioned before right the principle of prisoners were included in that which are the basic needs of a human being holocaust was the opposite mm. all the laws were against the jewish people mm. right which had a detrimental effect on human kind and the people itself and only benefited one party yeah at the time right let's uh, now go to our first guest um, who is dr rachel century uh dr rachel is the deputy chief executive and director of public engagement for the holocaust memorial day trust assalamu alaikum peace be with you a very warm welcome to the breakfast show thank you so much thank you for having me on this morning well thank you very much for joining us here at the voice of islam so um let me start by asking you about this year's theme of fragility of freedom and how it relates to the holocaust and genocides committed um uh, in europe as well as in cambodia rwanda bosnia and darfur of course so every year the holocaust memorial day trust chooses a new theme and as you said this year's theme is the fragility of freedom and we know that in every genocide that has occurred freedoms are chipped away and the victim group the, the people that are persecuted lose their freedoms little by little and we know that ultimately they lose the ultimate freedom mm. their lives and perpetrators often restrict individuals freedom of expression making it more difficult for them to challenge what's happening to themselves and others but in the example of the holocaust uh, the freedoms that were chipped away included things like jewish people weren't allowed to own a bicycle or own a radio and in the nuremberg laws that were passed in 1935 freedom of religious identity was also restricted and the other opportunity that we have with this theme is to consider what freedoms we all have today what freedoms do we enjoy freedom of religion freedom of speech and we know that even in 2024 not everybody has access to the same freedoms okay thank you um, my question to you is that um you, one of the stages to um genocide is um the dehumanization of the victims right and so how important is that to share the stories of those victims and tell their part of the uh, the history it's so important because often the victims are just reduced to numbers so if we talk about the genocide in Srebrenica for example we know that 8000 men and boys were murdered simply because they were muslim and 8000 is a massive number but each one of those 8000 people was an individual who had a family who had hopes and dreams same in the holocaust when we talk about 6 million jewish people being murdered that's for 6 million people that each had a family a life hopes dreams a future ahead of them 
And by us talking about them and naming them where we know their names, sharing their life stories, it really helps to re- not only to rehumanize them, not only to give them their identity back, but also I think it helps us when we're talking and learning about genocide to understand exactly what was lost. And finally, Dr. Rachel, um, do you think we have learned enough lessons from the Holocaust uh, of the yesteryears? That's a great question. And I think there is always more that we can all learn mm. about about the Holocaust and also the genocides that we mark on Holocaust Memorial Day. As you mentioned, Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia and Darfur. And our website, hmd.org.uk, has lots of opportunities to learn more about what happened, to share the stories, the experiences of those who were murdered and also those who tried to help them, the re- rescuers and witnesses, so that we can all learn more. The Holocaust Memorial Day, which was on Saturday a few days ago, gives us also an opportunity to come together in our communities, in our faith groups, in our schools and workplaces, learn about what happened in the past and make a, a commitment, stand up to say we won't let it happen again. Thank you so very much. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think we we all need to educate. And I think uh, mostly, I think our, our leadership, leadership, uh, global leadership, actually, the political leadership needs to learn from the previous uh, Holocaust the most, I think, because they have the driving, they are in the driving seat and they are the ones uh, calling the shots at the moment. So um, I just, we just hope and pray that people um, uh, heed uh, to um, to the words of peace, to um, to the calls for peace. And learns and and people learn lessons from the previous Holocaust and uh, uh, and don't repeat the mistakes of uh, the previous decades. Exactly. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Doctor Doctor Century. Thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate yeah. it. Uh, uh, all the best with all the great work that you do. Peace be with you. Thank you very much. Peace be with you. Bye bye. So that was Dr. Rachel Century, who is the Deputy Chief Executive and Director of Public Engagement for the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, going back to the uh, to the question of uh, how important is it for for our leadership, um, leadership everywhere, I guess, uh, both in the north and the south and both in the developed and the developing world. To uh, to learn lessons of the previous years and to try and and why for peace. Unfortunately, uh, that seems to be the crying need of the hour. Of course, definitely, I agree. Um, we were talking offline as well. It's very scary where in today's society there's still the same mindset when the Holocaust happened, where yeah. apparently, according to you know the Germans, that they were more much superior and. Um, They've basically taken the rights away from the Jews. It's very scary to see that it's still happening in today's society where, you know, that mindset has overgrown. But it's very scary to say it still lingers. Yeah. Right? Um, the same mindset of having a superior, you know, um, intellectual being according to uh, against a minority who have no um, access to water, you know, simple aid, basic need, just due to the fact that they're there. Um, and Islam is all against that. It's a form of terrorism, anyways. So yeah, let, let's let's talk about the Islamic uh, teaching of. I think this is this is an important point to talk about. Maybe the Islamic teaching of um, number one, defensive wars. Yeah. Um, and, and and number two, 
what the, the contact i mean we, we talked about it very briefly um in the in the introduction to today's show but the conduct of war whether you know defensive or aggressive um what is islamic teaching around the conduct how should one how is a is an army required to be to behave um in an islamic um uh in an islamic setting or under an islamic belief system the, the number one solution is first to find a solution for peace hmm. war is the last option right right and it, it only comes to the point when the oppressor does not give an, any other option to the people who are being oppressed right and first of all like the md muslim community and his holiness has mentioned they condemn condemn all acts of terrorism so we we also condemn the acts that hamas have taken out initially both both supplies to blame there's mm. no there's no right or wrong here both parties are wrong in right. that aspect right so like you were mentioning the principle of defensive war is that first the key is to find a solution of peace then going into the war is at the time of the holy prophet may peace and blessings well be upon him he was instructed by god almighty that you have the right to defend yourself right right where the extreme acts of terrorism were impacted on the muslim mm. people where But they couldn't even practice their faith they couldn't practice their faith yeah they were murdered there and then mm. right when people were telling them when when the tribes were asking them um, reject your faith here and now they said no yeah they were killed on the spot mm. till even then there was no defensive war it was from trials and tribulations to the point where god almighty commanded um, the holy prophet that you may yes you may go and defend yourself right right but defending the war was not to go and attack everyone yeah it's just those people who oppressed them mhm right it wasn't not to go and attack the children the women the elderly who had no power no they had they weren't involved in the um, in the uh, oppression part so once that did happen right when holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam did win the war peace and blessings of allah be upon him he established the rules of principality uh, principles where everyone was treated fair everyone had the basic need everyone had access to food water he fed his prisoners you know people t- tend to forget this is a war 1500 years ago mm. it's not now mm. we have access to everything we have access to mm. Mm. right um he had the right to actually restrain those access but he didn't because islam teaches the kindness to mankind whether you're christian whether you're atheist it doesn't it doesn't matter yeah god has created everyone everyone has the the right for a need right so for us to take that need away is committing a sin mm-hmm. it teaches us about the right of men right so if we myself i have acts, i have the ability to help someone whether the fact they're muslim christian or whatever it is that's that's my command to go and help them correct and and equally killing of anybody of any faith is yeah. wrong it's wrong it's wrong yeah to understand the fact that the holy prophet uh, muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam peace and blessings of allah be upon him like i mentioned before he was not a, he was a literate person hmm. he didn't know the tactics of a war hmm. he didn't know the principles of a war but he established those principles through god almighty yeah islam gives us the solutions already So what were some of those principles? Some of the principles were for example if you if there if there was a prisoner of war, mm. right? First of all they should have the same clothes as you. Mm. They should be given the basic needs as you. 
they should not be tortured right right even if they were the tortured persons mm. through the actions of yourself you should be telling him how how a human being should be right right they should be giving the simple principles that you have right of course prisoners of war wherever it is um you know there are some but the basic need of a human person should be there right women are not to be attacked right children are not to be attacked elderly are not to be attacked these are the mm. fundamental rules no trees are meant to be attacked mm. no places of worship can you imagine mm. in a time of war right no one looks at places of worship mm. nowadays mm. no one would look if this is a mosque this is a temple this is a church mm. they'll just go and bombard it yeah but the freedom of religion that islam gives is crazy in a time of war especially it actually looks at those people those those places and make sure that they're maintained right for people to come back and worship to yeah and uh, i think the verse also that actually gave prophet muhammad um uh, the the ability to uh, to go on to that defensive war and give permission rather Uh, to go on that defensive war talks about protection of churches talks yep. about uh, protection of uh, temples um and and talks about the protection of mosques right at the end protection of minorities yeah we're talking about the holocaust right mm. where jews were classified as a minority in terms of genocide yeah he protected those people mm. from any one or any group because they had their rights they had the freedom to speak they had the freedom of religion if you're atheist whether you believe in a god or not you had the freedom to do whatever you want but in those principles and they thrived yeah they didn't stop trading they didn't stop doing going on with the livelihood they thrived in that environment meaning that the key that islam had at that time worked and islam grew from that point and onwards and history tells us already the golden age of islam Right. So those things history has given us a undeniable yeah. fact there and then that the solution is there and it's only as I mentioned it so many times in peace symposiums etc. Mm. The Quran has the solution. It's written to world leaders. So you need to open your eyes and look that war is not the solution. At the time of this place where anyone has a hand of a nuclear nuclear bomb war is not the solution at all. Right. So uh in terms of um uh, of the islamic solution then so you're saying that the first step that islam talks about is that uh the war should be avoided at all costs yeah. and it should only be waged if uh, uh if uh, you uh, if you right to uh, to protect your faith is uh, is attacked and you can then uh, only wage it as a defense as a defensive mechanism and then when you um uh, even when you do uh, fight a defensive war you can only do that uh, under very strict yeah. parameters under very strict rules where you mention that uh, children are not to be harmed women are not to be harmed elderly are not to be harmed crops are not to be harmed trees are not to be harmed you know just to give just to involve that this there was an incident i think during one of the wars in the holy prophet I, i don't i don't want to misquote anything but it did definitely did happen basically they they were going there to establish camp mm-hmm. to a nearby side where the war was going to happen right and there was a there was a a source of water available for both parties now in a tactical war whoever has the access to a source of water he will protect it from the other party 
The only prophet, peace be upon him, did not. He gave access to both parties. Yeah. Mm. Like I've mentioned before, the principle of a basic need of a human being is water, food, etc. Sure. He gave access to the opposing party for water. Yeah. And they're going to a war. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. <laughs> um i i guess this uh, this also then um uh, brings us to the question of uh, injustice in the world and how injustice in the world is actually breeding all of these wars let's listen in now to uh, a short clip that we have uh, from a virtual meeting that his holiness hazrat mr masood ahmed Uh, may Allah strengthen his hand, had with Gambian journalists in which he talked about justice and the need for justice. Let's listen in. My question is, uh, we are witnessing a lot of uh, injustice and uh, also, uh, atrocities happening in, uh, going in, uh, in the world against the Muslim. Uh, as, as the uh, leader of the Jamaat, Uh, what do you think what trigger all this uh, uh, inhumane crime against uh, against the uh, muslims umar i have already told you in other question that because our leadership is not fair they are not sincere with their with their objectives they all have their own vested interests you see now we can see that uh, israel is killed more than 200 palestinians then if you see what saudi arabia did with yemen thousands of people were killed and displaced and removed from their houses and then what happened in syria and iraq if the muslim world is not united and they are killing each other how can we say that we can maintain peace in the world until and unless we as a muslim world become united and then there should be unifying force unity and one voice and that will serve the purpose but because our enemy knows that we are not one although we claim ourselves to be muslim ummah but as ummah we are not working together so this is the cause of all these atrocities being committed against muslims if you are one there would not have been any power who dare to to fight against muslims right Yeah, that was His, His Holiness, and um, His Holiness actually over the last uh, couple of decades has been talking about uh, not only uh, unity in in the whole wide world, but also the need for justice and uh, how injustice is is spreading all around us, and we see injustice, um, you know, in in the society, we, in the society that we live in. There's a there's a gap between the rich and the poor. that's an injustice and in the global geopolitical scenario there are a lot of injustices happening and we talked about some of those um, injustices in terms of the, some of the genocides that have actually taken place those were grave injustices but there are also injustices um, in in how the world is um, 
is established today. For example, uh, the, you know how the uh, United Nations, for example, is failing the world in terms of how the United Nations Security Council is set up. There's this right of veto, which paralyzes action. We've seen uh, that happening in the Ukraine-Russia scenario, where any resolution is then vetoed by Russia. And um, uh, any calls for peace um, um, are vetoed there. And then similarly here in, uh, in the Gaza-Israel situation as well, where we've seen that United States has used um, the right to veto to, uh, to calls for ceasefire. So um, what is the Islamic teaching around justice? Like we mentioned before, Islam holds a value to fairness. Everyone should be treated equal. Quran has mentioned it so many times. Right. Um, one aspect of, if you go to wealth, for example, Islam has one of the five, one of the pillars of Islam <clears throat> is zakat. It's mm. charity, basically, in a sense. But there's more aspect to that, meaning that Islam teaches us if we have wealth lying around for a year that you have not touched, 2.5% of that wealth should be gone to charity. Right. Or should be gone some form of a treasure where that treasure is utilized again to help out the poverty, the poor people, mm. to establish economy within that place. Right. Now you think about that, that was 14, 1500 years ago. Correct. All right. You were mentioning about poverty, how the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. The only way that's happening because wealth is staying at one place. Correct. It's not being utilized. And that is at the, at the root of, I think, of all injustices. Yes, I mean, of course it does. Of course it does. Of course it does. Of course it does. The rich are getting and, richer, the yeah. poor are getting poorer. Like I went to Africa, for example, Ghana, what I saw is that there is no concept of middle class. Hmm. There's either the rich or the very and poor. And the rich are very rich. Hmm. Like the stuff I heard over there and the concepts I've heard, it's, it's the extremely richer, but the poor are very poor. Hmm. Like in UK, I'd, classifiers like we do have some form of concept of a middle class over here yeah right but over there there is no such thing but that's not just in Africa that's all over Europe as well the the wealth that people are earning is staying at one place and they're keeping it to themselves they're not utilizing it to in, in help economy the poverty and Islam gave that solution through zakat but 2.5% of your wealth that you have not touched for the whole year meaning your savings should be utilized and given to the treasury, where they can use it to give aid, to help out poor people, poverty. That's one solution. It does fall under fairness anyways, right? You're playing, Muslims are already playing a part automatically, whereas the one they, are, they, are, they have been told to give 2.5% of their wealth that have they not touched other here. That's just one solution, right? And this, this place where aid is being stopped within Gaza, right? Hmm. If that solution of zakat was in place, anyways, <laughs> in the world, that aid would automatically come in. Yeah. They know that solves problems automatically. Yeah. Right. And it's very sad to see, very sad to see where the power of veto is unfair, anyways, automatically. If it, if it's not in their interest, it's vetoed straight away. There's no unfairness in that term. Um, you can explain better in the political sense. That where you know where humanitarian needs are outweighing the needs of personal interests. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we see that uh, that everywhere. I mean, the, uh, most of the wars that we see around the world are uh, geopolitical wars. They're either about resources or about land or uh, about wealth. Uh, there is, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, there is very little sense of morality yeah. uh, or ethics in not only in the reasoning of why these wars are be- being waged, but also in the in how they're actually um, uh, how they're actually being fought. So unfortunately, we see that everywhere. We see that in the uh, Russia-Ukraine scenario, and uh, as his Holiness has been warning as well. I mean, this um, uh, these wars um, uh, will spread. Yeah. And Definitely. His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmed has been warning the world of the dangers of a, of a global catastrophe, of a global war, of a global so, so conflict. It's like a chain reaction. Yeah, and and that chain reaction seems to be set off. I yeah, mean, it's yeah. it's happening as we see. Yeah. Um, so uh, Hamas attacked Israel back in uh, October. Um, Israel then retaliated, um, and now we see the Houthis involved. We yeah. see um, uh, 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 missiles being exchanged between Pakistan and Iran. We see um, uh, troops, uh, United States troops, being killed yesterday. So the war is already uh, is is already spreading. We see we've seen uh, missiles landing on Yemen. Yeah. So um, yeah, unfortunately, I think that. Um, is all of that is happening because there is very little sense of justice in the leadership of the world, something we started off uh, by talking about, the politicians of the world. And um, uh, uh, you, you asked me earlier about the International Court of Justice ruling. I think it's important to bring that uh, into into context um uh, as well today in in today's discussion, so the International Court of Justice um, has come come up with an interim ruling. Uh, the merits of the case will be decided in a few years' time. It it does take years for uh, the International Court of Justice to make a decision, um, and in this case, it will take years for them to decide whether or not what's happening in Israel in in Gaza is a genocide or not. But what uh, they have announced in terms of their interim ruling is that there is a, there might be a plausible genocide that um, is happening in Gaza, and therefore they have asked Israel to make sure that no genocide um, happens in Gaza. They have also asked Israel to ensure that all food aid um, and all sorts of other aid is delivered um, to the needy in Gaza. And the third most important point that they um, uh, of the ICJ ruling was that uh, Israel must report back to the International Court of Justice in a month's time on these interim measures uh, and, and uh, announce to the court. Um, but I believe and- that Israel doesn't have to answer to that. Well, that remains to be seen, I guess. Yeah, is, but... Is- yeah. Like we, I asked you the question before. They don't have authority to make Israel take these. No, so so these decisions are binding, but they, um, international court of justice decisions uh, cannot be enforced. Yeah. There is no army. Yeah. 
uh, no police force that the International Court of Justice has. So, yeah, to your point, um, the maximum that actually can be done is to take that discussion to the United Nations Security Council. And uh, then again, as we talked about earlier, it could easily be vetoed there. Yeah. So, so yes, so there is there is that. But, but I think um, one thing that I think has ha- happened as a result of International Court of Justice, and many people are saying that Israel will now be held to account. Hmm. And uh, for the first time, uh, there is uh, an international uh, de jure um, body has announced that there might be a plausible genocide taking place. So that's one. And then Israel will be asked to report back to the uh, International Court of Justice, which uh, which I believe um, they will. Okay. Um, and they will then have to tell the court as to how they've actually implemented uh, the measures that was announced, that was annu- that were announced by the International Court of Justice. Because, it, you know, Israel has, um, hasn't said that they will not cooperate with the International Court of Justice. They've gone to the International Court of Justice. They are part of uh, the United Nations and all United Nations members are automatically part of the International Court of Justice um, as well. Um, to some observers, however, um, it has the International Court of Justice ruling was a, was a disappointment because it didn't ask for um, or didn't call for a ceasefire mm. in uh, in the war happening um, in, in Gaza at the moment. And that was one of the provisional measures that was actually requested by South Africa. In it's crazy to see that a country like South Africa went to the... Oh, yeah, absolutely. No? Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's and 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 no Muslim country. No Muslim country. I mean, just think about that. Like the Holiness has mentioned so many... No, with with like so in, many in resources, the, with so much money. In the clip that was mentioned just now, when yeah. he said that the Muslim countries need to unite against the injustice, it's very sad to see that not a Muslim country went to the International Court of Justice. And these countries are so wealthy and have power, right, to uphold those decisions. And it took a South Africa, such a country, to go to the Internet Court Justice and initiate this ceasefire. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I think it's, it's sad. Yeah. That's the, yeah, that's what you can say. It's really sad that the lead that uh, um, a Muslim country should have taken and there are so many Muslim countries. I mean, there are so many Muslim countries with large populations, so many Muslim countries with all sorts of resources, and they didn't. They didn't. No. And then, uh, you know, South Africa had to uh, be the flag bearer um, uh, of um, uh, of trying to uh, to help the Gazans there in um, in their plight at the moment. Uh, one has to say because, uh, yeah, if you look at the figures, twenty five thousand. More than 25,000 people mm. have been killed. Uh, you can debate on the numbers, but I think very difficult to debate that uh, that it's uh, the, the number of those killed is not in their thousands. Thousands of children have been killed. Yeah. Uh, thousands of women have been killed. And, uh, you know, how can you justify those killings? Uh, you cannot... Uh, uh, even if you're saying that... Uh, uh, or one side is saying that yeah there is uh, there is militant activity there's got to be proportionality yep. you can't kill a hundred children or a hundred women and children because you're trying to target one or two or even five or ten uh, 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 Hamas fighters there and um, 
uh, to that. And also, I think there is a lot of debate in the media at the moment about the number of Hamas fighters that have actually been killed and about the... So Israel started this uh, this war with two aims. One was to rescue hostages Mm -hmm. and the other was uh, to to disarm Hamas or to eliminate Hamas. All the hostages... Uh, bar one, I think, that have been released so far have been released as a result of peace talks. Mm. Were released as a result of talks between Hamas and Israel and when there was a pause. Um, uh, hostages have not been able to, uh, Israel has not been able to get the hostages re- released as a result of the war it is waging. You and know, just, s- to, just to, sorry to cut you in, like I was telling you before, social media nowadays is the truth. What's yeah. happening there, right? So yeah. when the hostages were released, the the public was released. They were happy. Mm. They used to, they were sending peace upon the Hamas fires. Mm. The videos that we've seen. Yeah. Right. So in some sense, like I was mentioning, the principles. You mean the uh, yeah the the hostages? Yeah. Exactly. They, right. And correct. as much as the media tried to cover that up, yeah, the truth came out first. Correct. I mean, many hostages actually did praise the treatment that they actually exactly. received. Like, yeah, and, the um, fundamental needs that they were getting, yeah. water, yeah. food, yeah. right, by the Hamas troops. Correct. But the fact, like I said, we do condemn what they did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they shouldn't be in hostages in the, in in the, the first place. In the first but place, yeah. The, the, the treatment that they received, God already showed straight away. The truth came out before the media could, you know, kind of the mainstream media, it. sort of, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Sorry to cut you in. I thought I'd just put that perspective no, no, for the listener. Hundred percent. You're absolutely right. Let's now go to our next guest uh, for this segment, who is uh, Dr. Aziz, uh, Aziz Hafiz, who is the chairman of a charity organization called Humanity First, who has recently been actually to Gaza as well. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you very much, Dr. Hafiz, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, you, can you speak up, Dr. Hafiz? I don't I think... Can, can you hear me? Yeah, the line's a bit crackly. Is yes. that any better? Yes, slightly better. Sorry, okay, it's not I've, the greatest I've, of lines. Uh, that's all right. I'll, I'll just ask uh, Tech to probably try and see if we can increase the volume. Right. Uh, Dr. Hafiz, firstly, you've been to, um, to Gaza only, I think, two or three weeks ago. Uh, your your overall thoughts before we come to the specifics. Obviously, has has a humanitarian and has a humanitarian disaster responder. Clearly, it is a very traumatic and catastrophic situation. Um, so there's there's very little to add to what you can hear and see on the press. But mm-hmm. it is a humanitarian catastrophe, and we as humanitarians are struggling to cope. Basically, is in simple terms. What was the biggest need of the people there that you saw? So the biggest need is they need a ceasefire. Mm. So the, the issues that they are having of health, lack of sanitation, lack of water, lack of shelter, lack of food. So all those things can be remedied uh, until there is no ceasefire and the warring parties don't stop. Then these challenges that they are facing, we are struggling to remedy them. Uh, you all know that the humanitarian operation in Gaza is 
is effectively a non-operation. It is very, very limited. Uh, Martin Griffiths Archer said exactly the same a few weeks ago. The reason why it's limited is you are constrained. You are heavily constrained as humanitarians, as UN agencies, as NGOs, as donor countries as well, in what you can practically do on the ground due to the incessant bombing and due to the lack of aid being able to get in, unfortunately. Hmm. Okay. Uh, there are two issues, I think, here that uh, we read about in the press. One is the number of trucks that are actually able to enter Gaza. And then the other issue that we read is about those trucks then being uh, able to go around Gaza as well. What do you, Which one do you think is more pressing at the moment? I mean, they are both equally pressing. So, obviously, over the last 17 years, Gaza has been uh, on an air, land and sea blockade. Uh, mm. So, there is strict control as to what goes in and what goes out. Since the war, uh, that blockade has been tightened significantly uh, with access next to zero. On a typical day, the Rafah crossing from Egypt would take in about five to 600 air trucks, uh, which just about managed to fulfill the needs, uh, the humanitarian needs in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Currently, we are getting on average between 100 to 125 air trucks across that crossing. So the need for six is 600 and, and only about 100 are actually going in. Yeah, the minimum need was 600. Mm -hmm. And now we're getting 100. Remember, that minimum need is during a non-conflict situation. Mm -hmm. Now you have got unbelievable needs literally you cannot you cannot describe the challenges on the ground and then your second question in terms of movement inside movement inside is severely restricted because of the lack of fuel the fuel allocation that you have is to UNRWA and they then allocate that to their vehicles those vehicles are in limited supply you can't access the north of Gaza or is heavily restricted the main road that dissects or bisects uh, the strip uh, is 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 blocked at varying parts due to debris and, and other things the road infrastructure is not there then you need to have a deconfliction with the authorities on the ground to ensure that any trucks that you are going to send in the north they are deconflicted with the authorities for their safety that doesn't always work uh, so the challenges are huge both in accessing uh, sort of uh, from Egypt into Gaza and then internally within Gaza. What about, um, you mentioned water. Firstly, which part of Gaza were you able to visit? So we were in Rafah in the south where 90% of the Gazans are at the moment, mm. which is effectively an IDP catastrophe at the moment. People having no toilets, no water. Uh, the lucky ones have got one toilet between 600 people and they're the lucky ones. Wow. And those that don't have that, they have to use a plastic bag to answer the call of nature for their own dignity. Wow. Yeah, and that is the harsh reality. You have to queue for hours and hours. Our own volunteers uh, that represent Humanity First on the ground, you know, five hours in the morning, Yasser has to queue to just get some water just for his wife and two kids. And that's not to drink. That's just to wash with. That's every single day. And he classes himself as lucky. Five hours queuing up just to get a bucket of water. Absolutely. Five hours. Every day. And, uh, and what about food? 
Uh, what food, sort of food? Yeah, so food you get, uh, if you're lucky again, you'll get a piece of bread and some bean soup uh, once a day. Uh, and that's what most people are living off at the moment. Again, that's if they're lucky. That's if they're lucky. So so there is, there is famine, uh, particularly in the north. And this, what I'm talking about, is where the, ID, the IDPs are facing. There is still approximately half a million people still living in the north of Gaza. Although the majority are all displaced into Rafah, there is still half a million in the north. Uh, and and the, the honest answer is, uh, we don't know the situation that they're in. Hmm. Help us understand that a little bit. So so a lot of those people were asked to move to the south, and, and most people did move to the south, but half a million is a sounds like a big number for people to be in the north. I mean, from what we see from the pictures, the north has been leveled to the ground. It has been leveled, but you have to understand that nobody wants to leave their home. Mm. Some people choose not to move. Uh, many are elderly who are physically unable to move. Some feel that if we leave, you know, we're going to be bombed here, we're going to be bombed in the south, so we might as well stay. Uh, so it's a, it's a very, very difficult situation for the civilian population. You know, personally for me, that's like the most I've heard, um, you know, um, I think direct facts regarding how long they have to wait for water, etc. And, you know, the use of toilet. Um, you think media is, uh, you know, lacking that kind of information or they wish not to use, not to show that kind of, you know, um, image? Obviously, as a humanitarian worker, I can only comment on the humanitarian of course, situation of course. on the ground. I definitely, can only comment definitely. on the situation on the ground. I can tell you what we see. I can tell you what the needs are, how the world interprets that, how the world views that. That is sadly not a matter for me. Of course, of course. So tell us maybe then about your operation there. Uh, what is Humanity First doing and what are uh, and how can people support you? So Humanity First has been working in the occupied Palestinian territories of West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem for the last five to ten years. And in Gaza, currently, we are able to, and again, I add that with the context that it is severely, severely limited. Uh, we have been able to get our trucks of blankets in, winter blankets, winter jackets, water, non-perishable food items. These are coming in from the Egypt corridor. We've also recently managed to get aid in via the Jordanian corridor. Uh, so these are ongoing things that we are able to do. We've also been able to provide sort of cash-based assistance for internally displaced people for their food needs uh, across uh, southern Gaza and, and northern Gaza. Uh, at the moment, we are in the process of trying to get across uh, emergency tents into Gaza, as well as look at providing for primary care provision for the IDPs in the south. Uh, so there are things ongoing. Clearly, it's hard, it's difficult, but, but things are moving and we would urge uh, our donors and our supporters to continue to donate. Uh, and if they support Humanity First, all well and good. If they support any other organization, I would ask them to urge them to support any organization that they feel comfortable with uh, that can help the people on the ground. The need is endless. Do you buy these um, or, or source these goods from here in the UK or, and then ship them all across to Egypt or how does that no, work uh, out? The, the majority of items are sourced locally in Egypt and Jordan. Right. Okay. And then they're shipped across the border. 
Absolutely. Um, in terms of, uh, you mentioned cash, disbursement of cash as well. So are, is there a market at the moment inside Gaza so as well? This is a million dollar question. <laughs> there, there, is a, there is a limited market in Rafah in the south. Uh, there is a limited market, but that is that is severely, severely restricted and hampered. And and how does that market operate? I mean, we, how, how do those people source the, those goods that they're selling? So if you can imagine, and don't quote me on this, that, that there is still an element of some product there in in the in the south, right. and that product is 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 daily diminishing sure okay. uh, so the stocks a, that they may, may have uh, yeah, from previously absolutely and that the so what's ten dollars today is twenty dollars tomorrow what's twenty dollars tomorrow is thirty dollars the day after mm. uh, so it is a catastrophic situation and some people then sell their aid in all honesty so if you're a family and we've given you x items and you think okay if i sell this i'll get more money to be able to get more things mm. uh, so it is a really dire situation for families and these families are very very dignified people i mean i i know the gazans very very well over a number of years during my last visit in 2021 with humanity first oh, they're engineers they're doctors they're scientists they're professors they're highly educated population highly educated population uh, and and many were well to do many were well to do our own volunteers our own humanity first staff that are sleeping on the street at the moment with everybody else you know their engineers are representative for humanity first there is a, is a highly qualified engineer that had a very very good job and all he has now is a street to sleep on and a piece of uh, sh- sort of shoddy tarpaulin to protect him from the storm mm. these are the harsh realities sadly very sad how critical do you think is the UNRWA operation there so the UNRWA operation is very critical. Obviously, there are current challenges that mm. it is facing. Uh, UNRWA has been there for 70 plus years, since 1948. Uh, and it is it's practically one of the majority employers there. It runs majority of the schools, it runs a lot of the health clinics. It is the main humanitarian aid provider within the Gaza Strip. And how do you think this uh, their efforts will be hampered as a result of what's happening at the moment? So obviously their efforts have already been hampered, as is everybody's, due to the war. Mm. And the UN have themselves, as I've said before, have said the humanitarian operation is effectively non-existent. It's mm. purely an opportunistic operation. You know, if you can do a little bit of this, you'll do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you can. But there is no systematic organized operation because the conditions do not permit that, sadly. Correct. I mean, there has to be, as you said, a ceasefire before any um, any measurable success can be achieved on the humanitarian side. Um, finally, Dr. Hafiz, how can people support your work? So I would urge anybody wanting to support, they can donate on hfuk.org hfuk.org you'll be able to see a brief details of the work that we do we'd ask you to donate all your funds are utilized effectively as pretty much as soon as they're received uh, so anybody that's willing to support please do and secondly advocacy uh, those in their professions in their circles there they have an advocate for those humanitarian needs that the people are suffering Dr. Hafiz, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, all the best with all the great work that you're doing there. 
peace be with you god bless you thank you for having me on thank you very much Bob. so that was dr aziz hafiz who is the chairman of uh, humanity first which is actually uh, a sister, which is actually an arm of the ahmadiyya muslim community sister concern uh within the ahmadiyya muslim community uh he went to gaza and he was sharing us uh, his thoughts uh, pretty dire situation there definitely um, the stuff he was telling us it's pretty um impacting on the heart and the mind um is very scary that we live in a world where such things can still happen correct especially us living in the west mm-hmm. you know a lot of people wandering across the street and think that this war has no effect on them i'm telling you as the holiness has told us is going to affect us yeah it's, it's already be. affecting the prices yeah. fuel you know you're thinking about cost of living chain reactions to everything correct everything has an impact mm. it's affecting the shipping lanes exactly everything is um mm. you know uh, people are complaining about cost of living the electricity everything's going up these are these are all small small warnings that this his holiness has already given us um you know and in terms of what help we can all give so yeah you you heard dr hafiz yeah absolutely uh, go on to the humanity first website and you can make uh, an online donation there um but also i think uh, what his holiness has uh, has been saying repeatedly that we need to pray for our pray. brothers and sisters uh, there and we need to dedicate at least one uh, prostration in every prayer uh, uh, that's at least one but after listening to what it is i mean i am thinking why should we not um, dedicate all of our prostrations for those brothers and sisters i mean just uh, imagining Five hours. Just imagine queuing up for five That's hours. That's if you're lucky. That is if you're lucky for for water for just a bucket of water. That's if you're lucky. Absolutely. The one meal a day. I mean, just imagine one meal a day for your kids. Uh, And I'm pretty sure the parents will sacrifice that meal for their kids anyways. Correct. So the parents don't have any meal. Correct. For the sense of you know maternal and paternal instinct. And just, then if you get um, sick, you you know, yeah. then uh, really, I don't know what. Uh, it's just what be scary doing. that. Right uh and on that uh, rather unfortunate uh, note we will come to the end of today's program but uh, I guess we we can all do something and as uh, Imam Bhatti said that we uh, as as Dr. Aziz 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 also said that we must uh, do advocacy around us we must try uh, uh, and um, and talk to people about the need for peace about the the urgent need for peace in um in Gaza at the moment and also try and support the humanitarian efforts there of uh, any charity that you support thank you very much for joining us this morning that was our program uh, for today so we've talked about two topics today we've talked about um, uh, the fear of losing your phone which is nomophobia and then we've talked about uh, uh, the holocaust memorial day and then we've also talked about the current holocaust uh, um, uh, or or should i say um, actually the current um, war that is actually waging in uh, uh in in Gaza and the desperate situation the desperate desperate humanitarian situation there thank you very much we will be back uh in a week's time there will however be a live show tomorrow until then assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh may peace and blessings of allah be upon you